Episode 66, When End-of-Life Care Isn't Careful. Today, I speak with Dr. Blaine Workentine, founder of caregoals.com and Vimpty. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It's no secret that end-of-life care often has some problems. There's often a stark misalignment between the patient's desired health outcome versus the standard outcome the healthcare system is conditioned to achieve. Our healthcare system often aggressively treats illness to try to make someone well. But after a certain point, well is well outside the realm of possibility. So the pain of the treatment can easily become worse than the disease. Dr. Blaine Workentine is the founder of two companies with a mission to level up end-of-life care. Vimpty helps patients create video advanced directives, and CareGoals helps providers have end-of-life care conversations with their patients. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Blaine. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Let's talk about end-of-life care, which is something that probably doesn't get the level of conversation that it deserves, and you are an expert in this area. End-of-life care has this kind of difficult meaning in healthcare. It's really considered the third rail for healthcare stakeholders. I know there's a couple of different aspects of end-of-life care, and it's a gigantic topic, so we probably could take it from any number of them. But maybe you could just talk about it from a a quality perspective, say? Well, I think the simple answer is that Americans don't really make decisions for end-of-life care. And when we do, we fail to talk about it with the people that matter most. And so the 25% or so that do do it summarize their decisions to a, a simple piece of paper, typically in front of a lawyer. And the document, which is known as Advanced Directive of Living Will, is subsequently rarely available and non-binding and universally ignored by the healthcare system. So in essence, this results in a majority of Americans receiving the default choice for a care, which is aggressive to the very end. And even if better judgment starts to prevail, all you need is a single fearful, anxious, or hopeful voice in the room to then be required to continue on as a healthcare professional. So yeah, I think you know 30% of Americans now have surgery in their final month. 54% of Americans with metastatic cancer are still on chemo within two weeks of their death. And 30% of us will expire in a hospital at more than $1,500 a day, with 17% of us in an ICU at over $10,000 a day. Meanwhile, it's been showing that comfort care or a palliative care approach is half the cost, much improved quality of life measures, much more comfortable, extends life by nearly 40%. So I think we really need a transition from a quantity type picture to a quality type picture, which is really where the healthcare system's moving. So I think we're set to do a good job with this, but it'll be some time. And, and really, the, the embedded stakeholders really need to look to find partners that can open an avenue for this conversation. And I have been reading a number of different articles over the past couple of years where, exactly like you're saying, where it's kind of the impetus or the first instinct of medical practitioners, for obvious reasons, to try to do the best they can to aggressively treat something But on the other hand, you have an elderly person who 
simply wants to live out their last days in comfort. And even if the surgery is wildly successful or this very painful, whatever it is, is very wildly successful, it's not like it's going to buy them, you know, a trip back into their, you know, into their 50s or or, or something. They are still going to be at best an 85-year-old. So it's just kind of a very, very different, a misalignment of priorities, I maybe you call it. Oh, no question. I mean, my grandmother recently passed away four months ago. Uh, she was 94. She was four years in her nursing home. She was unable to toilet, bathe, feed, or get out of bed. And worse, she was unable to really respond to even a single command or recognize anyone. And yet she was resuscitated with a DNR order in the chart. And when uh, questions started happening about why that happened. Basically, the people in the room said they didn't want her to die on their watch. And, uh, you know, this is very typical. So I, I'd be surprised if if not a, if every American hasn't over the age of 50, hasn't had like a similar story to tell, really. The issue really is at some point, you know, cost. I mean, one third of Medicare's budget is spent on Americans in the last months at over $200 billion. And just 45% of us will receive hospice care today. Of those 45%, 35% of them will be in there for less than seven days. And culturally, it's even more disturbing when 75% of Caucasians utilize service of hospice, but just less than 9% from minority populations. So we have a lot to learn about how to position uh, end-of-life care services. You know, recent reports on Dartmouth Atlas and other sources, including Kaiser, really stick to this idea of a Pareto principle where 80% of the costs come from just 20% of Americans and 20% of them, of those 20% of Americans, 80% of them are in their final three years of life. And in other words, 65% of all healthcare costs is consumed at the end. This is probably where that whole hullabaloo about death panels comes from. It's such a difficult area because on one hand, you've got patients who really don't want the aggressive treatment, the very expensive aggressive treatment. You know, so you've got a patient who has said, I don't want this. And you've got a medical profession who has taken the Hippocratic Oath. So it's in their line of duty to do everything that they can to, in quote, save the patient. While at the same time, by doing a very aggressive, very expensive surgery or, or what have you on an elderly patient who doesn't even want it, that same amount of money. I mean, it's a zero-sum game here. It's not like there's unlimited funds. So that same $100,000 is not then being used to help someone else who might actually want the help. No question. This is why, you know, my focus has always been on trying to position this topic as something people want to talk about. And, you know, new poll from Kaiser shows that 89% of the population agrees with this philosophy that they should talk to their doctor around end-of-life care. And 83% want to talk to their spouse about it. But but yet only 17% of us have. So there's a real, you know, in terms of quality, if we just start pushing the button of conversations, I think that's the most meaningful piece that we can bring to the table. Basically, what you're saying is that the best way to make sure that your directives are followed is to make sure that someone in your family understands exactly and specifically what they are so that they can police that decision. Is that kind of the point? Well, absolutely. But even I think, you know, further, you know, check marks on a piece of paper, like an advanced directive are just not that meaningful, right? I mean, you can't really grab that much data from a check mark. But what you can do is have a conversation with someone, a loved one, your doctor, your children, your spouse, 
And those conversations not only bring to the table, you know, kind of the philosophy that you might have personally, but give others the ability to respond more appropriately when needed. And, you know, I can also see that from a doctor's perspective, it might be a little bit more compelling to see something that is bigger than check marks on a paper, just simply because of all of the chicanery that could potentially go on, you know, like there's wills and estates and there's all kinds of reasons, perhaps, why someone might be compelled to check a box that they don't really want to. As a physician, you're really, I mean, you can't take the, the weight of the paper as meaning anything. It's non-binding. It's, it's exclusively ignored, universally ignored. I think, you know, when you have someone in the room, you know, whether they're best friend, uh, power of attorney, or just, you know, a relative that is squeamish, uh, fearful, anxious, you have to listen to the person that's most upset. And, you know, the patient really, they're because they're unable to respond, really gets sidelined as the issue. And as a physician, you just follow the, you really follow the loudest voice in the room, which really is the issue. And, and so, yeah, Vimpy was really crafted to first, you know, make the process digital. But over time, we've really moved towards video. And we've got other pieces to it, but it's it's really a the idea that video has a much more much more to say about what people want. So why don't we talk about Vimpty for a sec? So it's it's a mobile app, and you enable people of any age really to record themselves giving their advance directive. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. It can be done asynchronously, so there can be just questions that you do with your family. Or it can be in uh, in a telemedicine conversation, so it can be supported by one of our counselors. But in either case, you know, we get real video elements to support your decisions, and we have strong conversations that are recorded for later. This is this is a central piece of what Vimpty does. So the conversations are recorded, and then obviously stored. How do you know? Say then the person making the recording goes to the hospital. How does everybody know that those videos exist and that they should perhaps take a look? There's a, 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 a certain EDI environment where you can send an attachment prior to admission or prior to a, a, a prior authorization for admission. And so we tie that our environment to that. And so before the, the patient really even is, is accepted by the hospital, the, the document has to have been downloaded. So wait a second. So I'm a patient. I'm going into the hospital. It's my responsibility to call my doctor and say, wait, 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 I got this advanced directive. I want to make sure that you have it. No, and ours is integrated into EDI 278, which means that your previous institution, when they try to transfer to the hospital, the accepting hospital will have to download, will have to accept a prior authorization using EDI 278. And at that moment, they have to click on the button to download the attachment. But how does it get to the first institution? Hopefully you've been at that institution for a bit longer and you've, you know, put in your, your desire to have your advanced directive uploaded. So you were working on Vimpty. When did you start Vimpty? Uh, actually, we were one of the first. It was in 2012. You know, we've learned a lot along the way. The first iteration of Vimpty, what was the business model? Were you asking the patient to pay for this? I mean, how did your financial model work and how did it go? You know, we wanted the business model to really find a home with the people who had the most value in the solution. So, you know, patients have value in the solution, no question, but but do they gain the most? Absolutely not, right? So, and do providers, perhaps if they're at risk, but most likely it's going to be the payers. So we positioned it as a prepaid account for payers to 
you know, buy uh, a certain number at a time ahead of their need. And we would go out and try to drive the usage in their region. So basically, you would try to get a meeting with Blue Cross Blue Shield. I'm just picking a, an insurance plan out of the hat. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of the Medicare plans, for example. And then you would try to sell them a pack of a thousand uh, advanced directives. And then it would be on them to try to reach out to their members and get their members to record these videos. Is that how it would work? The health plan itself didn't have to bring up the topic if they didn't want to. You know, they, they, they really have a hard time doing it. So so we wanted to be that kind of, you know, middle layer that that was able to break the ice on the topic. In some ways, I can see why a payer might not want to do that simply because they also have a very compelling reason to withhold care. So it could be a little bit of a public relations juggle there. Oh, it, it's absolutely, you know, from, from the user standpoint, it quickly, you know, looked like rationing. So, so we, we thought, you know, they need a different brand to take on that conversation. And, and that was our contribution really to the whole topic. You attempted phase one, say, of the Vimti operation, which was a business model dependent upon revenue from payers, and that didn't go so well. So you pivoted. You stood up a website, or probably more accurately, a platform at caregoals.com. What I learned is healthcare moves at the speed of trust. And we had not really developed that trust with the customer and neither really has the health plan, right? I mean, they have, you know, two percentage points above big tobacco. So the customer really needed to learn about us in a trusted environment. So we basically took a break from what we were attempting to do to reconsider whether we even had a real business. I love that. Healthcare moves at the speed of trust. And really, you probably can't overstate that, especially relative to end of life care. And and I mean, talk about the ultimate life and death decision, right? Yeah, exactly. So you took a break, you went to the top of a mountain, sat there, pondered. When did you come down off the mountain and, and start again? We really got a, a windfall in July of this year. CMS proposed a reimbursement model to physicians and other healthcare professionals to really have these conversations and, and get reimbursed for them. It's set to start in January. I think of it a lot like the chronic care management code, except that it happens uh, once or twice a year. Uh, luckily, we timed everything perfectly. Our team is ideal to achieve this new goal and relationships we've cultivated over the last few years are now set to be extremely successful with us in this new reimbursement. So when you say these conversations, you said providers are reimbursed for these conversations. What, what kind of conversations do you mean exactly? It's really set up to just be a 30-minute conversation about end-of-life care without any regard to what gets discussed or anything. So it can really be a bit freeform. And, and you know, that, that's a benefit and a negative. I think health professionals, you know, they'll be set to bill at 1.5 RVUs for a 30-minute engagement. But the final regulations are really finalized in November. The real issue is that many healthcare professionals are not going to be prepared to know how to have this conversation. As a medical doctor, I had very little training in end-of-life care on, on the whole. And I think, you know, we're ill-prepared as a healthcare industry to really take on this challenge. And what's the name of that, the, the new reimbursement? There, there's, actually a, there's actually a CPT code, but at the moment it escapes me. I should know it offhand, but... Um, you could just Google it, end-of-life uh, reimbursement. That, that, that would be enough. You'd, you, it would pop up. It's a CPT code for end-of-life care conversations. Okay, so you guys got wind that now end-of-life conversations are going to be 
reimbursed, 30 minute end of life conversations. And just one more logistical question. Can anyone perform those end of life questions or must it be, you know, a medical doctor? No, I mean, that's the the beauty of it. Really, anyone can, a uh, social worker, PA, anybody that can bill and code to Medicare. So you've got wind that this new reimbursement code was on the horizon, obviously connected the dots relatively quickly to what you were trying to do. Yes. And then you started a new website in order to facilitate that 30-minute conversation. Uh, it becomes an easy way for uh, physicians to to have, or physicians and other healthcare professionals to have these conversations in a more programmatic way and have the patient and family do most of the work, which is really where the value is. You know, the nice thing is that when you look at, you know, Kaiser did a research uh, just two weeks ago on 1,200 patients and, you know, 83% said they were pl- they would love to talk about end-of-life care with their spouse. 57% said they'd love to talk, you know, were very comfortable talking with their doctor. 27% said they were somewhat comfortable so I, I think there's, you know, there's there's reason to believe that there's a large part of the population that would engage with these conversations. And if we can be a tool to enable that and to engage that conversation through our application and through the platform, I, I think that's really what we're, we're attempting to do. So I am a patient. I would like to have an end of life conversation. How do I even find your website to begin with? Well, distribution in healthcare is, you know, uh, very challenging. Patient going to patient or B2C is extremely challenging, even for an Instagram. For us, it'd be near impossible. And, and we, we found that out the hard way. You know, the, the nice thing is there's another stakeholder that really has a lot of desire to maneuver forward in, in driving these issues, not just the, the payers, not just the accountable care organizations, not just the uh, at risk providers, but actually there's a, 5,300 hospice locations in the country, a rather fragmented industry that is challenged with driving earlier and more referrals from their physician networks. And we hope to really align with those hospice locations to give them a tool to drive that those types of referrals. How does that work? So you are I hesitate to use the word selling, but, you know, basically they're paying for it, the hospice locations. And how does that enable them to drive a relationship with providers in the area? Well, two two ways. I mean, actually, we're not, you know, hospice is not, you know, a a thriving, you know, economic environment today. So we're not interested actually in charging them, you know, an incredible amount. We're, We're basically trying to give them something at essentially cost or cost plus. But the solution is that, you know, they really need a, a business development system that gets them more awareness of their communities and, and gives their physician, their physician networks tools to drive an interaction that might lead to earlier hospice stays and longer hospice stays and more hospice stays. So we really just want to align with them as a distribution partner, co-brand the environment care goals, you know, pr- brought to you by Samaritan Healthcare or other hospice locations to to be our distribution channel so that the physicians then learn about us. And then from there, those physicians then utilize it with their patients and their patients learn about not just the environment of care goals, but it's branded through Samaritan and Samaritan gets the referral uh, volume and uh, the referral opportunity. So it's really just aligning with them as distribution partners. Hopefully what we know to be true is that this is probably the most meaningful and powerful healthcare data available today. A single conversation can be worth uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, $60,000, depending on 
population you're working with. Okay, I think I understand now. What happens is that you partner with, uh, you know, in your example, Samaritan. Samaritan goes to providers in the area and says, hey, look, I have a platform. You should get your patients to go to caregoals.com and and have this 30-minute conversation. You can bill, actually, for having this conversation, doctor, you know, or social worker or whoever I'm talking to right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Meanwhile, that conversation is stored with Samaritan. And most likely within that conversation, the patient is going to say something like, you know, look, if I'm really in a bad way, just send me to hospice. Because more patients feel that way, say, than as we just discussed, physicians perhaps. So exactly like you said, you're going to get more patients who through their own desire get sent to hospice a little bit earlier and most likely they're going to get sent to Samaritan since this whole thing was co-branded with Samaritan. Did I sum that up well? You did. And, and you know, I think the, the, the really is the disconnect, right? 17% of uh, the population is having these conversations today when 89% say they would like to. So just giving them a tool for that conversation to start to take place and to break down the barriers, to break the ice, to uh, enable a, 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 a coordinated conversation and enable data to be a part of the conversation in terms of its in terms of its opportunity to engage that population, but also in terms of the wider community of healthcare industry to then understand the needs, the desires at this time period, which is where all the money really is being spent. You got the notion that you're going to facilitate these care conversations and make them more, I'm going to say meaningful or more useful. In other words, it's one thing to simply have a care conversation with a, a social worker where the, the patient may start to understand the issues a little bit, but it's only actionable if that conversation is recorded so that the patient's advanced directive is, is documented in such a way that providers will have put some faith in it. So, you know, you're facilitating that. But I understand you've gotten a little fancy here. So it's not just the conversation that you're facilitating. What are the wraparound services that you're putting around this conversation facilitation? Our long-term opportunity, which we're attempting to do in certain areas, is to actually craft in an episodic bundle around end-of-life care and take risk. Oh, that's um, risky. <laughs> it, it's actually quite uh, unrisky, really. I mean, the, the truth is there's lots of dollars. Yes, you need to have a strong partner to take that risk. But actually, what we know is end-of-life care as a quality you know, environment is quite poor and uh, the cost is quite high. And we know we can do a much better job with it. So really, the risk is very little, given the fact that we know we can save so much so quickly with so little. So I, I think that, you know, the, the truth is, it's the right environment to be working in. You know, the, the typical population that, that I think you can think about is, is the dual population. So these are extremely poor elderly. Today, they're consuming, there are 10.7 million Americans that are dual eligibles. And they're consuming 43% of Medicare and 41% of Medicaid. You know, by 2025, that'll be over a trillion dollars being spent in these two entities for this population specifically. If we keep on that pathway, you know, it's untenable. But I think, you know, given the fact that there's so much uh, being spent there, could you reorganize the pathway and actually pay the daughter to be at home with mom if she was given enough security and protection, given, you know, the decisions that were made or, or have been presented? And how could you in, in, create an environment where they're given all the tools to really be successful at home? That's really where we're trying to move. 
Interesting. I mean, I know in some of the Scandinavian countries, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, caregivers are paid to stay home with their elderly parents or relatives. And it makes good sense if you think about it, because somebody's going to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, exactly. I mean, the actually, if you if you pay into long term care insurance, the the primary environment that they're trying to you know swiftly move you in is is a an environment where you can pay your daughter to do the work or or your son when that time arises. So you'd have a, a basically a piggy bank for them to do that work. But on the the Medicare you know dual eligible population, they don't have that choice because the daughter's probably you know struggling with their own resources and their and, and generating their own income sources. And so, you know, they're not available. But if you gave them the opportunity to be available and the support system to do a better job, that would be a really meaningful opportunity. There's a lot to be done, obviously, in this area. And it's interesting that no matter where you turn, there's such a focus on, you know, comorbid diabetics, for example, and, and all of these, you know, cardiovascular or respiratory type ailments. But it's very infrequently that I hear, um, you know, end of life come up in conversations. I mean, maybe it's just the conversations that I happen to be in. So perhaps it's a factor of my own environment. But I, I just feel like even in the in the you know the the news feeds that I subscribe to, there's so much more about the, the cardiometabolic conditions and whatnot. Where, as you're saying, it's just as big of a problem, you know, arguably is is the dollars that are being squandered in needless end of life care. Oh, oh well, I mean, it's it, it's just the you know the aggressive philosophy that we have as a country. It is something that people identify as being American. And I think, you know, that's a difficult thing for us to move over past. And, you know, the embedded stakeholders who've been there for, you know, decades aren't likely going to tread into the end of life category because it just doesn't feel like something that they, you know, can resonate with their brand. So, yeah, I mean, the people who have the resources today are struggling with how they're going to approach the topic. It is really meaningful. I mean, in the end, you know, getting your fourth round of chemo you know, doesn't make you live longer. Well, you know, let, me give you, let me give you an even better example. So you told the story about your grandmother. Let me tell you a story about mine. <laughs> okay. Awesome. <laughs> my, one of my grandmothers, I have one that is 101. The other one is 96. So the 96 wow. year old has a heart valve, an artificial heart valve, which she got when she was like 82 or something. And every year she goes to, by the way, let me just also mention the fact that she is diabetic. So there's nothing that can be done with this artificial heart valve. I mean, if it goes bad, it goes bad. It's not like they can crack her open and, and put a new one in. I, she wouldn't survive the surgery. But every single year she goes to her cardiologist who runs a battery of tests, which are very invasive. I mean, he makes her get up on a treadmill. He's doing this stress test. He's doing all these blood tests. I can only imagine the amount that he's billing Medicare. Hmm. And at the end of the stress test every year, he tells her that her heart valve is failing. And then we spend a month with her where she's going to the emergency room every week because she gets slight indigestion and she thinks she's, her heart valve just failed and she's going to die. It's classic. I mean, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to laugh about it, but I mean, it's just it's 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 silly, right? I mean, you know, but to the cardiologist, you know, he's got a 
he's got a very narrow scope of what he does and he's looking at this through that lens and and that's the only lens that matters to him i you know i think you know had your grandmother really had a conversation with palliative care uh likely they would have said you know this is where you're going it's 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 life ending you know, we're not going to be changing you know the scope of that issue you know let's just make sure we palliate or deal with the symptoms and and, and right then, you know, health literacy actually takes the, the major role. I think, you know, the one thing that I'd like to say about, you know, chronic disease and end of life care is that most of us will die of a chronic disease, number one. Number two, you know, dealing with behavior change in chronic disease is quite difficult. Interacting with a diabetic patient might take at minimum 15 interactions a day. But end of life care takes just a single conversation to really move the needle. And I think that's really the opportunity. You don't need to be sticky. You don't have to actually interact with them 15 times a day. You don't have to give them a, a activity monitor, monitor and, and interact, you know, have phone calls every day. You just need to have a single conversation that's meaningful. And I think what people that have this conversation realize is that it can be the most meaningful conversations of their lives. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Blaine. It has been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you so much for doing your podcast. I'm a total addicted fan, so thank you so much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.